morning, Trinity Church. I know it's the day seven of the new year, but happy new year anyway. Uh, so glad you could join us this morning. So um, as we come into worship this morning, um, just want to remind us uh, in the, as Paul reminds us that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Um, the old is gone, the new has come. And as we were preparing this first song we're going to sing this morning, uh, it was just a, a great reminder to me of what God has called us out of and what God then calls us into, out of all that God has done and what God is going to do. Um, as this bridge says, we were beggars, now we're royalty. We were prisoners, now we're running free. We're forgiven, we're accepted, redeemed by his grace. So what is our response? Let the house of the Lord sing praise. And that's what we're here to do today, to recognize all that God has done, and to do that with a joyful noise, proclaiming God's goodness and his love for us. So would you please stand as you are able, and we're going to begin this morning with, with worship.
here today, and I'm so glad to be with you. My name's Steve Springstead. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and I wanted to share with you how we start the new year. I don't know how you do, but we as a family right here, we love action, right? We're action heroes, as a matter of fact. Uh, we, have, we have all kinds of good things happening, but if you're here and new to us, we'd really like to give you a card, a card that offers a free coffee, a free whatever you want. There's free coffee, but then there's smoothies, yes. So if you're new with us, we'd love for you to go straight out these doors to the first thing that you walk into is our Start Here booth. Turn in that card with them, and they're going to give you a free smoothie and they're going to want to get to know you a little bit, so they're going to ask you a few things. Just They just want to know your credit card number, a couple <laughs> things like that. Don't worry about it. Um, we're all good people here. We all, uh, we all have uh, good things to do. Anyway, great to be with you here today. Good way to start the new year. Yes? yes. Great to be together for the new year. So uh, I want to share with you a few things. First of all, we always do this in January. We're having a picnic today. If you can have Christmas in July, we can do a picnic in January, right? So right after the next service, after the 11 o'clock service, we're going to have a picnic outside out here uh, on the, the field out here, and it's going to be fun. It looks like the, the sun's come out. It's going to be great. Come out and join us for a picnic after the service. So how's that a good way to start tell you about is that we have some, some really wonderful things happening. One of them is that we have a... Are they calling it a class? Are they calling it a group? I'm not sure which it is. But it's this Tuesday. That's two days from now. We're having the Art of Parenting group class. We'll do both. And um, what it is, it starts at 630. And we did it at that time very intentionally because many of you parents are dropping off middle schoolers or high schoolers at that time. We would love for you to just walk upstairs in that building over there and join us for the art of parenting. Do you remember? I remember parenting middle schoolers, high schoolers. Whoa. Uh, I needed help. My wife said, you really need help. And I did. And um, I want to encourage you to make that. Look, what are you going to do with those two hours after you drop your kids off? Huh? You going to watch something on TV or whatever? No, this is going to be great. I want to suggest to you, make this a priority to go to this. Even if you don't have a middle schooler or a high schooler, uh, whatever you have, come to the Art of Parenting class. I think it's going to be really, really good. 
On top of that, in just a couple of weeks, we are having our first women's conference in a long time. It is really, really good. It is with Rhonda Stoppy. I'm actually reading a book by her right now. So it's on Saturday. You need to apply for it. We have a slide for it here. It's called Courageous, Intentionally Making a Difference. I'm reading a book by her right now called Helping Your Boys to Become Godly Men. Great. She's an excellent teacher. I love her writing. She's really, really sharp. So I want to suggest to you that today is the day to sign up. It's just a couple of weeks away. We'd love for you to do it. My wife and her uh, and our daughter-in-law just signed up for it yesterday. We're good to go. So I want to encourage you to take time today to sign up for that. It's going to be good. In addition to that, we're going to get a chance to pray. Every week we pray for someone in ministry, someone who's in a difficult place or in an easy place. But in this case, this is for a family that I don't even know if I'm supposed to mention their name uh, because they work in the Middle East and he has translated the Bible into their languages in the Middle East. I'm being careful how I say it, aren't I? On purpose, because he's actually been kicked out of a couple of countries already. And um, he has been used by God for at least 30 years. I've known him for 30 years and his wife uh, for all that time as well. I'm not saying their name on, person, on purpose because I don't know if it's blacked out. But I will tell you, I want to pray with you. We're going to pray real specific. The Lord knows their names. Okay, let's pray. Father God, I know that they live in dangerous places a lot. Places where you have protected them for many years as they have translated the scriptures, as they've helped many people come to follow the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you'll sustain them. I know that they've had a few medical challenges in the last year or two, and I pray you'll sustain them, Lord God. You're using them in mighty ways. I know that we as a church have supported them for over 30 years, and we have really always loved hearing what you're doing. God, you're mighty, and I pray in the same way that they're putting themselves in the places to where they can help people come to know Jesus, I pray that for us this year. I pray that this will be a year as we focus on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, helping other people to know, to love, and to follow Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. On that same vein, uh, the action words, uh, it's an important part of uh, our worship, right? Worship being an action in itself. Um, and I think the, uh, the next action that we, we take time every week to recognize is the action of giving. Um, and I love the action word that's actually at the start of this verse here, honor the Lord with your wealth. With the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I don't have a barn or a vat, but um, the Lord has, has, blessed, uh, has blessed us and we, can, we need to honor the Lord with what he has blessed us with. And so uh, as we take a moment just now to, to reflect on that and to, and to give, um, just encourage you to, to consider how are you honoring the Lord through your wealth. Let's continue to worship.
as we're surrounded by this holiness, by the presence of our Father, we get to spend this time in worship, participating in Holy Communion. And so uh, you should have been handed the elements on your way in, and if you didn't grab them, uh, there are stations all over the place here in the front of stage, by all the doors. Please take this moment to avail yourself to those resources. And once you have them, go ahead and have a seat for just a moment as we reflect. In the presence of His Holiness, this is a, a reflection of Christ's eager desire. It is a sacred historical moment, and it is evidence of the kingdom having come. And so, I just love the way the Gospel of Luke uh, puts it. He gathers with his disciples, his closest friends, those who he spent the most time with. And he says to them, I've eagerly desired to spend this meal with you. Can you imagine the author of creation saying to you, looking at you right into your eyes and saying, I've eagerly desired to spend this time with you. That to me just makes my heart flutter to hear those words from my creator, from my rabbi, from my friend, from the presence of holiness. I just wanna remind us in this room today that this is one of those moments he eagerly desires to spend with you. With that having been said, I wanna invite you guys to peel off the top layer. There's two lids on that little cup, the very top layer has a little wafer inside of it. We're gonna take this together in this moment. The words of Christ say, this is, this is the bread, this, body, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And he says to take and eat. And he says to do this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and take the bread at this time. he offered fruit of the vine he said to his disciples and he says to us to take and to drink and he says that he won't taste any drink or food until the kingdom had come he says so in that moment this is why it's called the last supper this is the last time that Jesus ate or drank before his death on the cross so he instructs his disciples in that moment as he foretells what's about to happen to take and to drink. Let's go ahead and do that at this time. Go ahead and drink. And so this practice took an ancient Jewish tradition and set in motion something that was to come. For what we know later on in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus appeared to his disciples and he ate with them once again, which was a signal to say that the kingdom actually has come. And he promised that his presence would never leave. He actually told them to stay put for a second until they were filled with the presence and then they were able to go. And that's a generation that we live in today. That's why we get to practice this sacred, sacred moment. 
That's why we're stepping into history by being a part of what those disciples got to experience, not only in the moment of communion in the Last Supper, but also in the moment of his resurrection and the sharing of the meal and his announcement that the kingdom is here and that we get to live in that. So it's with a great degree of gratitude that we receive these elements. And I just wanna say a prayer of blessing over us as we continue on in singing and worship. Why don't we all stand to our feet as we're gonna continue to sing here, but let's stand to our feet as we pray together as well. And I wonder if, if you are willing, let's think of a way or a thing or a reason why we can have gratitude in this moment. Each of us with our thoughts, I just want us all to say out loud the words, thank you. One, two, three, to say thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for the kingdom being here. The fact that we can be surrounded by holy. It's all because of the very presence of Christ, which has never left. Lord, we see you and we say thank you. Thank you for your eager desire. Thank you for the sacred and historical moment that we practice. And thank you for your kingdom, which is here. Lord, we honor and we bless you. We recognize your holiness in this place. And as we sing to you, we just ask that you would be pleased with the words of our mouths and the reflections of our hearts. Lord, live and move in and through us as only you can. We love you and we proclaim you as we remember you in this holy communion, in Christ's name. Amen. If you walk in freedom, and if you 
Some people in life are just natural winners. Everything seems to go their way, and it really seems like they have it all. The rest of the world stands in awe of their success and wonders how they too might get a little bit of it for themselves. But sometimes, being on the top of the pile is not as fulfilling as we might think. Sometimes, having it all can result in significant losses of relationship, peace, personal privacy, lasting joy, and deep significance. It's in moments like these, when we feel such losses, that God comes alongside and offers to give us everything we will ever truly need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him and His great promises. This is the all we not only can have, but truly should have. So what are you waiting for? Do you want to have everything that God can provide? Well, good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Doug, and I'm your interim pastor during this period of time. And this morning, before we get into the Word, uh, I would like to start with a statement that I think um, every one of us would probably agree with this morning. But you can tell me what you think. So here's the statement. It's simply this. I, I believe that everyone today, so that's you and I, everyone around us, every person in the world, regardless of geography, is seeking one very significant reality in life. And that is significance. Now, what I mean by that is simply this. I think everyone around us, uh, everyone I have ever met, uh, wants to be known and loved. Everyone uh, wants to have meaning and, and purpose in life. And I believe that everyone wants to feel connected and to know that their lives are making a difference with others. Uh, simply to have substance and, and satisfaction in life. Would you agree with that? I think for the most part we would. Now, there are times when we're discouraged, we're feeling anxious, we're feeling afraid, we are having disappointments, we are even maybe at, at points on the edge of despair, but I think even then there is this lingering desire to be significant in some way in life. And it's amazing to me that we see this. We talk about it in a variety of ways. We talk about living life to the fullest. Um, we talk about covering all the bases or or going for the gold. Some, some of us have that kind of competitiveness in us. Um, staying on top of things, just making sure everything is working together, uh, or getting a grip on things. And maybe even as we've described it in our sermon series uh, for the next uh, eight to ten weeks, having it all. So if that's true, I think there's a very basic reason why we all have this sense or this desire for reality. If you go to the Old Testament, you find in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it's one of the books written by Solomon, this statement, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity into our hearts. In other words, I think God has put within us this, this sense of desire for something more than we're experiencing, something more than the temporal, something more than what I have right now. And in fact, as I was thinking about that verse this week as a launch pad into 2 Peter 1, which if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you turn to 2 Peter 1? But as I looked at, at 2 Peter, I thought about Ecclesiastes 3 because of this statement. He's put eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? 
gotquestions.com has a great short video. I want to have us take a look at it right now, and it'll give us a little more of a sense of what uh, Solomon was talking about. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 states that God has set eternity in the human heart. In every human soul is a God-given awareness that there is something more than this transient world. And with that awareness of eternity comes a hope that we can one day find a fulfillment not afforded by the vanity in this world. Humans operate in a different way than other forms of life. We have a sense of eternity in our lives. We possess an innate knowledge that there is something more to life than what we can see and experience in the here and now. However, through all the ups and downs and vicissitudes of life, we have a glimpse of stability. God has set eternity in the human heart. Life is but a vapor, James chapter 4, verse 14, but we know there is something past this life. We have a divinely implanted awareness that the soul lives forever. This world is not our home. So I asked you earlier if you agreed with that statement. If you're sitting there going, I'm not sure that I do agree with that. I mean, look at the world around us. We do have a problem today, and that is we don't feel this reality of significance or, or that sense of being deeply grounded or deeply satisfied in this life. We don't feel uh, that we are always in control. We don't always feel well-connected. We, at times, are anxious or fearful or lonely or disheartened. We sometimes feel that life has gained up on us, and we're at the bottom of the pile. You can look throughout our culture today in any arena. It doesn't matter where you look, and you hear voices that are speaking into our lives, talking about this whole idea of, I don't think you can have it all anymore. We have become a culture of skeptics, a culture of people who are struggling. Um, Howard Stevenson, who's the former chair of the Harvard Business Publishing, agrees. He wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, and he entitled it, No, You Can't Have It All. Listen to his words. We'll have them on the screen for you. He says, It's hard for high-achieving people to accept that they can't have it all. Even those who recognize the limits on their time often still expect to be energetic and efficient enough to excel in every role. Productive employee, inspiring boss, mentor, supportive colleague, active community member, committed spouse, friend, parent, child. It's exhausting just reading the list. He says it's a natural response to our upbringings. After all, in school we're taught that hardworking, intelligent students can get straight A's. But in the messy real world, it is impossible to do everything perfectly at the same time. He says it's like walking on a balance beam while trying to juggle an egg, a crystal glass, a knife, and any number of other fragile or hazardous objects. Think about that. That is his view of life today. This is that difficult balance that people are trying to keep. He says as you progress in your career in life, more responsibilities and opportunities are tossed at you. And so at some point, to maintain your balance, you, you have to drop something. You cannot pursue all your goals simultaneously or satisfy all your desires at once. It's an emotional drain to think that you can. You just can't have it all. Now, if you go to a whole different spectrum, there is uh, Ashley Iaconti, who is an uh, actress, a social media influencer. She as well was on uh, Bachelor. She was a Bachelor star. And she writes on her Instagram recently, she just had her first child, she says, whoever came up with the expression, you can have it all, definitely had a nanny, housekeeper, personal trainer, chef, and driver. <laughs> right? Like, 
sure you can have it all if you've got all those people. She says, last week I had a little bit of a mommy meltdown on my I Don't Get It podcast. I was so overwhelmed by motherhood. I remember, she writes, when I was pregnant, being worried about how I was going to deal with the life change. Dawson, her son, requires a lot of undivided attention. He's not the kind of baby who will sit in a playpen or an activity center and play solo for an extended period of time. Anybody have a baby like that? Where do those come from? She goes on to write, plus opening Audrey's coffee house and lounge the same year we had a baby was difficult. Jared can be at the shop for over 60 hours a week and until 2 a.m. some nights. I'm home alone with a crying baby a lot, like so many parents out there. It gets lonely and it can be taxing on your mental health. No, you can't have it all. Interestingly, how many of you saw Inside Out? You know that movie from Pixar? about the little girl who's growing up. She has all these emotions in her mind, and they're competing back and forth for her attention. Well, they're coming out with Inside Out 2 in June, and they have added an emotion. Would anyone care to guess what that emotion is? Anxiety. Anxiety. Thank you. And we're all going, of course, duh. She's a young teen, right? This world is anxiety-inducing. And, and so as we think about this whole idea of you can have it all, I want to focus us this morning on 2 Peter 1, because God redefines all. So when we think about it from a worldly perspective, we agree you can't have it all. But God says to us, no, you can have it all when we define all as being significant and having satisfaction having meaning and substance, having a fullness of life, being connected and feeling loved and, and known in relationships. You can have it all. So take a look at 2 Peter 1. In this passage, God lays out for us through Peter three things to think about as we look at this idea of having enjoyable, deep, lasting, satisfying relationships and an enriched life. Look at the first two verses. He starts out with this first idea, you can have it all because of what God has done. You can have it all because of what God has done. Look at verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant, literally in the text, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, oh, may peace and grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter is so crystal clear here. He says, look, folks, we have obtained something from God. God has done something. And, and just as the first followers of Jesus, so Peter and the other apostles, the disciples, the men and women who followed after Jesus, experienced life transformation in their relationship with Jesus, so today also we can experience the same life transformation with him through our knowledge of Jesus Christ as we have faith in him. So he says to us, look, your, your faith has the same punch and power as that of the apostles. Think about that. The faith that you and I have been given is not a watered-down second version just because we're in the 21st century and they were in the first. This faith is not a second-hand faith. Look back to verse 1. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained. Who are the those? The people listening to Peter, just as we're doing this morning. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours before God. 
So he says, your faith and mine in God is just as equally valid, powerful, full of energy as that of the first apostles. And that is good news. So what he's saying to us, if you want to put it in practical terms, is that the faith that you and I have in in God does not have to be like Panda Express just before they close. Lisa and I, not too long ago, wanted to go out for a late, late dinner, right? Been a long day, so we thought, let's go to Panda Express. So we got over there about 8.55. They close at 9, right? And we walked in the door, and there's that buffet line of all of those trays, and you're looking for your favorites. And as we came in to the door, the gal says, oh, oh, hi. Like, what are you doing here? And we said, hey, we came for dinner. And she goes, we have two entrees left. It's like, really? That's all? You're still open. You should have a full buffet line, right? And sometimes we come to a a faith in God, or we think about our faith in God like that. We feel like we've come late to the game. We're late to the buffet line. And what are we going to get in our relationship with God? Well, we kind of get the leftovers, the bottom of the barrel, because that's all that God has left for us. And Peter says to us, joyfully, no. No, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a faith that is equally standing before God. It has the same high-quality value. It is undiluted. It is time-tested. It is unmodified. It is power-packed. This is what God has done for this. And we know this. Why? How can we know this? Well, look at the next part. Look at verse 1 again. It says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, our God, Jesus Christ. So what Jesus did for us, his right behavior, sets the stage for us to to have the same faith uh, as all of the disciples and, and spiritual leaders, past and present. You can think of Billy Graham. You have the same faith as Billy Graham. It has the same value before God or any other Christian leader, man or woman, you'd want to think about. Jesus was righteous. So what it means by that is he, he lived a perfect life. So he never told a lie. He never stole anything. He never lusted after anything forbidden by God. He never spoke back against his parents unjustly or selfishly. He never uh, cheated on a test. He never failed to pay his taxes. He was always um, rightly, justly angry with others, never unjustly. He always acted in a manner that God required. He was perfect. How many of us can say that about ourselves? Well, when we're younger, we might think that. As we grow older, we begin to have perspective. And so what teen or or young adult can say they never selfishly pushed back against their parents? I can't say that. But only Jesus could. What guy can say he's never had lustful thoughts about a gal? I can't say that. But Jesus could. What person can say they've never wished for things that other people had, that their neighbors had? They see it out in the driveway or... They see it in the backyard. They can smell that new barbecue going on. And Jesus never said that. There were so many ways he was perfect. And the fact is, of course, we know every one of us has disobeyed at least one of God's commands. At least one. Which makes us imperfect in his sight and subject to the wrath of God towards sin. He loves us, which is why Christ came. But the sins of our lives separate us from God, the Bible tells us. And yet God, in his great love, chose to rescue us. He sends Jesus Christ. He lives this perfect life. He fulfills all of the law. He 
tells us about God's rescue plan. He dies on the cross. He is resurrected again. Our punishment is removed when we have faith in Christ. And he gives us his righteousness. He gives us right standing before God. The perfection of being, where we never have to worry about God judging us again. We have a rightness before God. And Peter points at that. And he says, look at what God has done. He says, our faith does not rest on our works, our deeds, our actions, our imperfect performance. It rests fully on Jesus' perfect work, perfect action, perfect deeds. And so we begin our lives there with that kind of faith. It's real, it's potent, and it's alive. That's why Peter can say in verse 2, take a look at it there, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But God has also given something else to us. We've also obtained something else from God. Look at verses 3 and 4. And I love these verses. These are two of my favorite verses in this this book. Peter writes, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things, everything, That pertains to life and to godliness. And it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So you have to realize the knowledge that we have of Jesus Christ is focused on his glory. It's focused on his excellence. Standing in awe of him. And he says in verse 4, by which, by the glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Because he is great. Because he is excellent. He can give us a promise and he keeps it. So that through them you may become, listen to this, partakers of the divine nature. You can actually begin to become more and more like God in the way that you live, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Folks, this is almost unbelievable, isn't it? That God would do this for us. That his divine power would grant us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now think about Peter for a minute. How had he seen the power of God? I want to tell you of one one story in his life that was vivid in his thinking, even as he wrote this book. He and his uh, fellow disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been serving all day long. If you've seen The Chosen, you remember that one scene where he comes back from healing people and he's heading for the tent and he's just exhausted. And all the disciples realize, what are we arguing about? He's, He's the one doing all the work. Well, he gets into the boat that way. And they begin to row across the Sea of Galilee. If you've ever been to Israel, you know you've got the mountains nearby. Storms sweep in at any moment's notice, and it does. And the boat begins to become swamped by the huge waves and the wind, and the disciples are rowing like mad, and they've got the sail up. And finally, they realize, this is it. We're going to die. And they turn to Jesus, who is still asleep in the stern of the boat, and they say to him, Master, do you not care that we're dying? Now, remember, Jesus is exhausted, right? They're they're looking at him like he's got nothing left. And he stands up and he says one word in his language. Still! And everything gets quiet. And do you remember the response of the disciples? What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. And they marveled at his power. Now as Peter writes this book... This is part of what is on his thinking as he says, his divine power, that raw 
power to even control nature in its worst form has granted to you and I everything we need for life and godliness. The word life here is such a beautiful word. In the Greek, it's the word zoa. How many of you have gone to the zoo? Can I just see hands? Wild Animal Park Zoo? Doesn't matter which zoo. This word zoa that we use in English for zoo literally means multifaceted, marvelous, wide examples of life. So when you go to the zoo, my mother-in-law's favorite animal was the meerkats. Every time we went to the zoo with her, with, with grandkids and our daughters, guess where we went? The meerkat exhibit. Giraffes, rhinos, you name it. The word elephants, yes. The word zoa means multifaceted, wonderful variety of life. And so Peter writes to us and he said, look, are you looking for a life that is full and wonderful and multifaceted, pulsating, gorgeous life that just drifts with the sense of reality? God's divine power gives that to us. And then he says, he gives us godliness. Now, godliness is a word we don't really have much in our vocabulary today. It's not a common cultural word at all. But here in Peter, he, he defines it this way. You might write this down, excellent devotion. That's literally what godliness means. It's excellent devotion. It's, it's an attitude of high respect and awe towards something that results in me saying that thing or that someone is more important than me. I remember once, uh, I, Lisa and I worked with a lot of Marines in our last two churches, close to Camp Pendleton. I had a young Marine who said, hey, I want to meet you after, uh, after my work today to just sit and talk about God and the Bible and stuff. I said, great, I'd love to. We set a time, three hours later, he still wasn't there. And we had been texting back and forth, I'm coming, I'm coming. He finally arrived, and Fernando says, I said to him, why are you so late? I'm okay with it, but I'm just curious. And he said, well, here's the thing. I'm in charge of a squad of guys, and my commander told me they cannot leave for uh, their um, liberty until all the paperwork is done. So I took time with all 12 of them, and I filled in the paperwork because my men come before me. And I thought, that is excellent devotion. He respects his commander, and he says, these guys are more important to me. I am going to act in a manner that says that with my life. Now, you may say to yourself, I'm not sure that's a great, incredible gift, right? Godliness? I like the idea. But Peter points out that the more we get to know Jesus, the more we see how great and excellent and glorious he is, the more we will step back in awe, and we will begin to listen to him and take what he says and apply it to life. So we become godly in the way we live. It's out of this devotion to him our lives change. So suddenly our marriages uh, begin to improve as we respond to Jesus' words and, and life example to put our, our husband or wife's needs before our own. You know, Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. So we begin to do that. Uh, we begin to find that work is more enjoyable as we work as unto the Lord and our boss and co-workers go, where did this person come from? And they're different. Parents are stunned as their children learn to obey God's command to honor their father and mother, and they begin to say, hey, can I wash the dishes, or can I be the one to do poop patrol in the backyard? Right? That favorite fun thing to do. Our lives 
begin to change in godliness because of our reverence for Jesus Christ and our knowledge of him. So Peter, who had walked with Jesus for a long time, and he had witnessed his great uh, glory and excellence um, dramatically, knew that this kind of power could transition and change our lives. It changed his life. And folks, this is not just a dashboard knowledge. It's not like where you just glance at the dashboard at the speedometer or the, the gas gauge or the tachometer and you just get the facts, that quick glance. This is a grease monkey knowledge where you are in depth and you're probing and it's an intimate understanding of why things work and how they work. He says this is the knowledge that will renovate our lives. As we come to Jesus Christ, mental walls come down, emotional bathrooms change shape, Durst, dirt and uh, dust swirl, and, and daily living is retooled for new and for uh, unlimited root routines. So that is what God has done for us. He starts with our faith, and then he says, look, all of my power is available to you for life itself and for godliness as you get to know Jesus Christ. But there's a second thing. Peter says, you can have it all because of what you do. Look at verses 5 through 7. For this very reason. So what's the reason? Our faith and God's divine power, his promises, the greatness, excellence of Christ. Because of all of that, you make every effort to supplement your faith. Isn't that a beautiful opening statement? You've got faith, you need to add to it. Supplement your faith with, and he gives us seven qualities, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, steadfastness. And steadfastness with, and here it is again, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. He says there are seven gifts that he wants you to open. Add to your faith. Now, honestly, we're going to take the next seven to eight weeks and look at each one of those individually. So when you come next week, there's going to be one word we're looking at. And it's going to be saying, make or add to your faith virtue. We're going to look at virtue next week and say, well, how do we do this? So I'm not going to take time to do that today. What I want you to notice today is simply this. Peter, inspired by God, says to you and I, you and I have to make every effort to add to our faith. That's our job. And when we do, there is this truly remarkable and dramatic change within us as the Spirit of God works. So number three, and finally, as God erupts this greater life within us, and as we, we pay continuing attention to these things, as we're going to see in this text, we become, listen to this, effective and productive in this life. How many of us would, would say, I want to be effective in my life. I want to be productive in my life. Everybody desires those things. And Peter here says, you can have this, Plus, you can anticipate a rich welcome in heaven. So this is not just for here and now. This is for the future, if we will pay attention to these things. Look at verses 8 through 11. For if these seven qualities are yours and are increasing, so you're still making every effort to keep expanding them, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. I used to have vision that was 250, 270. You're supposed to have 20, 20, right? I'd wake up in the morning, look at the clock. It was like, I think the clock is there until I got my glasses. Nearsighted. And he says, 
so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you now we add practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will understand that. God says you will, you will not continue to sin more and more. You will never fall. You will never um, lose a salvation. You will be welcomed into heaven. For in this way there will be richly provided you, for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Someone once said, the Christian life is not a rest stop. It's a race. It's not a place to just kind of pull into the side of the race and hang out and set up the, you know, the uh, sun cover and put out the chairs and you know, bring out the cooler. And... He said, no, the Christian life is a, a race so that every day is to be marked by this godly focus and pursuit of growth. So Peter says there are two paths open to us as believers. One path is to build on our faith and to add all of these seven qualities and become effective and become productive in this life and have a rich welcome in heaven. And Peter says that's the preferred path. The other path is, is to not build on our faith, to be satisfied with, with our um, clinging to God. We're clinging to our justification, but rejecting our sanctification. So I'm glad I'm in the kingdom. Boy, onto my things. Peter says, you know, in that case, we become ineffective and unfruitful in our understanding of Jesus. That's not what he designed us for. And in fact, he says, we get spiritual Alzheimer's. We forget we've been cleansed from our sins. And we all know people like this today. I, I have family members. I have loved ones. I have friends who were ardent, gung-ho followers of Christ when they first came to know him. And they didn't pay attention to these things. And they slowly drifted. And today, I have a number of them who have proclaimed Christ is not God. I am not a follower. And I'm doing my own thing. And we can look around today and find that is true. And that's a place of great spiritual danger. So, so Peter writes in the final closing verses, and I want to share these with you and then end with a quote from a, a commentator this week I thought was great. Look at verse 12. Therefore, because of all what I've just said, therefore I always intend to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, you're established in the truth that you have, but I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He's going, man, I'm going to the very end of the finish line, and I'm continually shouting back over my shoulder, don't forget the qualities. Pay attention to them. So it, it stirs us up to pursue them. Secondly, Peter says, I want to convince you of the powerful realities that we are dealing with. Look at the final verses, 15 through 21. I will make every effort. There, he's working at it. I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. In other words, you've got them memorized. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the transfiguration. Jesus begins to glow brilliantly, and Moses and Elijah show up. 
And, and they're glowing, and they're talking to, together about this coming crucifixion and resurrection. And as Moses and Elijah disappear, Peter's so excited, he says, hey, let's build some tents here. Let's, let's give you a place to dwell. Moses, come on back. Elijah, come on back. This was great. What a great experience. Peter looks back at that, and he says, that was when we saw with our own eyes the majesty of Jesus Christ, his glory and his excellence. And so he says in verse 19, and we have that prophetic word, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, confirmed, fully confirmed, to which you and I will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. None of this was produced by man's choice. It was all God's. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So folks, in this sermon series, I believe God wants to, to invite us to walk with him in faith. And if you're here this morning, you say, I'm not sure I have faith in God. This whole sermon series is designed to encourage us to entrust ourselves to God. To say he is great and excellent. Look at his life. It is without doubt God's presence among us. So he says, have faith in God. And then secondly, begin making every effort, adding to the effort you're already exerting, to add to your faith. One author puts it this way. We'll end with this as we go into our final song. Living without Christ is like driving a car with its front end out of alignment. You ever done that? When it's seriously out of alignment? And you're driving along like this, and you're thinking, I should have done this last week. I've had a car or two like that. You can stay on the road if you grip the steering wheel with both hands and hang on tightly, but any lapse of attention, and you head straight for the ditch. Society in general, educators, political leaders, spiritual leaders, parents, they all exert us to drive straight and curb our destructive tendencies. But it is a ceaseless struggle because of our old sin nature. He says, coming to Jesus Christ and living under his power is like getting a front-end alignment. The pull toward the ditch is corrected from the inside. It's not to say there won't be bumps or potholes ahead that will still try to jar us off the road. Temptations and challenges will always test our alertness to steer a straight course of fellowshipping with God and obeying his wise will. We can hardly uh, afford to fall asleep at the wheel and not pursue growth in the Christian life, but the basic skew in the moral mechanism has been repaired. With this success over sin, Satan, and the world comes a confidence, satisfaction, and unshakable certainty that we are on track with God. So I would love to have you come back this next week. And let's take a look at the virtue that we will add to our faith and begin to work harder at our faith as we enter this new year. Let's also stand together as we close this service. We've got a wonderful song to uh, wrap up with. I got a chance to sit in here while the worship team was practicing it earlier, and it put chills down my spine as I thought about this passage. So let's uh, join them as we sing together.
as we sing this song, just, uh, just remember we're celebrating. We're celebrating what God has called us out of, called us out of darkness and into his wonderful, marvelous light. Um, a life far from him, now brought close to. And let's, uh, yeah, let's celebrate with this song.
Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I pray you have a great week, a great day, a great year ahead. So much to look forward to. Uh, we do have a team of people up here who would love to pray with you if you would like to pray with us. Uh, otherwise, have a great day and go in peace.